You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. It's been one week since the largest earthquake ever measured in Japan struck and created a tsunami which obliterated much of the northeast coast of Japan's main island, Honshu. Since then, the world's attention has been focused on the Fukushima prefecture, where a battle to prevent the meltdown of a nuclear power station is raging. This morning, Professor Ryuki Kasai, Director of Community and Family Medicine at Fukushima Medical University, took time to talk to me about the situation there and the scale of the problems that they're facing. Uh, first of all, I want to uh, express my deep sympathy for those who lost their loved ones, Absolutely. their houses, their work, their hometowns, and their hope um, by this terrible disaster. In the first two days, it was chaotic, and then I'm working for my university medical center, and uh, so the medical center uh, accepted uh, mainly the major trauma patients, as well as uh, the patient with uh, uh, medical and surgical emergency, Mm. like heart attack and the stroke. And but after that, in the following period, let's say for two days, hundreds of patients started to be evacuated from the hospitals and nursing homes in the tsunami hit areas. Mm-hmm. And then our function at the medical center shifted to the one where we need to look for any facilities or uh, hospitals to accept these uh, lot of patients. Mm-hmm. And then most of them uh, were frail, demented, bedridden, elderly. And now, oh, so we, for now, oh, we are in the stage that uh, we have uh, sorted out those patients. And now, oh, our major concern is the potential hazard of the nuclear power plants in Fukushima Prefecture, my prefecture. And even though my medical center has well-trained specialists of uh, nuclear medicine, and uh, they anticipate and prepare for worse accidents, but we still don't know exactly what we should prepare for or what kind of knowledge we need. And also, even though we medical personnel know the information, how to give this information to the people in the communities? For example, the prevention of thyroid cancer Mm -hmm. of children is our priority, but how we can uh, give this information to the parents, for example, uh, or the timing and the duration, mm-hmm. and doses, and the adverse effects of potassium iodide mm-hmm. administration. So even for our uh, staff at the hospital or doctors in the communities, so they don't know exactly the risk of potentially contaminated foods. So we need definitely the information of uh, good quality 
in terms of the prevention of a thyroid cancer. Mm. And the, is the government trying to provide that information? So we are looking for information by ourselves. And uh, of course, we have a sort of a national institute for uh, radiology or nuclear uh, medicine. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, this evening, we invite the specialists uh, from there to give us a, a lecture. So uh, the amount of uh, information is growing, but the government, both uh, national and local, so they are not acting uh, as an operator to handle all these information shortage. So now uh, our medical school is acting uh, kind of a leader for this disaster now. Okay. Um, how about things that are a bit more practical day to day? We're hearing stories now that for some people water and fuel and food is running low. Uh, is that affecting you at your hospital? Uh, yes, uh, the situation is getting better gradually. Just a couple of hours ago, our uh, medical school and its uh, medical center uh, has got uh, water supply. But still, we have a significant shortage of uh, fuel, petrol, so heat. Mm. And also, oh, we don't have much, much medicine and medical uh, materials. Uh, left. Transportation systems uh, still are not uh, functioning well. Okay, so that will be a problem to get potassium iodide um, prophylactically to parents and <clears throat> people who will need it then as well. Um, cold weather and a lack of fuel uh, is obviously particularly vexing for, for elderly people. And we've heard stories um recently just coming out about uh, you know residents of care homes who who survived the tsunami but they're now succumbing to to the weather and the lack of heat and and water and food and things is that a big problem at the moment um are, are things getting better there or do you think they'll get worse uh i think uh, the situation will uh, get worse yeah as i said uh, the many Enslaved elderly people evacuated from the uh, the dangerous area to the uh, shelters, but uh, the care in those shelters are not enough. Mm. Uh, some some people need tube feeding or uh, IV infusion and uh, the basic. Um, medications uh, for hypertension, diabetes, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, there's not enough number of medical personnel taking care of those people in the shelters. And uh, our medical center uh, started to send uh, doctors and the nurses to those shelters uh, since yesterday. But the uh, situation, they said, was terrible, and uh, so we need to have some urgent solution, mainly led by our medical schools, I think. And do you know how many people this is this is affecting? 
I don't have exact number, but uh, they say uh, it's around uh, 200,000 people mm. are now in the shelter. And uh, I guess uh, the nearly half of them are the frail elderly. Okay, so do they have a, is there a priority needed for their care um, that you need? Yes, uh, I think uh, the priority is uh, the first, uh, the basic things, enough warmth, water, and foods. And then we need a group of people to sort out uh, those people and find out the needs for them. And uh, if needed, we have to arrange so that they are seen by doctors. Japan is used to earthquakes. They happen a lot. Obviously, this was the biggest one that's been recorded there. But uh, how prepared do you think, as a country, you were? You know, did you have plans in place to deal with with a disaster like this? Uh, Yes. Um, It's a difficult question. So, even though we had uh, a big earthquake hit in uh, Kobe and the uh, Hanshin area uh, several years ago. But uh, um, no significant or concrete uh, improvement we have uh, accomplished uh, in terms of uh, the prevention or uh, the maneuver under this situation. So, uh, and then uh, for me, it's my first time to have uh, such a uh, huge disaster. As uh, the chair of the Department of uh, Family Medicine, General Practice, Primary mm. Care in my prefecture, I, yeah, I strongly feel that we need to uh, construct the systems uh, for the future uh, disaster. Mm. I mean, you've talked a little bit about uh, the plans that you have in place for you know, prophylactically treating children with uh, potassium iodide so they won't take up radioactive iodine um, should the worst happen at the nuclear power plants there. But do you have plans in place beyond that of, of how to deal with everything if the worst-case scenario does come to pass? So for now, we don't expect uh, that the major explosion will not uh, happen. Mm -hmm. In terms of the effect of a short-period effect, we are now constructing uh, the systems of uh, iodide uh, supply Mm -hmm. to every people, especially uh, the younger uh, people and uh, pregnant mother and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, in terms of middle or long-term effect of the accident, we still don't know. And then we are discussing how we can follow up beyond the acute disaster period. Now, regarding this, I want to uh, have uh, information from this podcast uh, listeners around the world. And do you think it's the biggest thing we can do is provide this information that you need? Yes, yeah, that would be very helpful. 
I've heard that uh, the Japanese government decided to accept foreign doctors to work inside the area, but uh, we don't have enough petrol or water or heat here in uh, Fukushima. So I think uh, the information is the best thing we'd like to have here. Professor Kasai, uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Our thoughts are with you and all the people of Japan. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us? Yes. Uh, as a family physician, general practitioner, I think yeah, what I have uh, experienced uh, during the past one week is uh, uh, a kind of, uh, how I can say, a... Yeah, of course, uh, the uh, emergency and the care for the uh, major traumatic patients are the first priority. But even so, even in the first one week, I think we need, uh, we definitely need uh, the systems, sound systems of uh, primary care here in Japan. Primary care uh, system in Japan is quite underdeveloped. So that resulted in the situation where the many people go rush into the tertiary care medical center. Mm. And uh, the medical center's function was affected. We'll be covering more of the situation in Japan as it develops, and we hope to hear more from Professor Kasai in the future. So keep an eye out on vmj.com for more information. Now, Mabel Chu talks to the author of one of our therapeutics articles about the use and efficacy of atypical antipsychotics. I have with me Dr. Paul Mackin, who's from Newcastle University and has written a therapeutics article for the BMJ on the atypical antipsychotic drugs. Paul, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Thank you very much. It's very rare now that I have a patient coming to my surgery as a GP um, on the older antipsychotic agents such as haloperidol or chlorpromazine. Um, they're far more likely to be on these new agents uh, such as risperidone or clozapine. Can you tell us a little bit about what they offer over and above the older drugs? That's a very important question. The, the atypical drugs were introduced with, it must be said, a great deal of attendant uh, pomp and circumstance because one of the, the key messages was that they appear to be relatively free from the extrapyramidal side effects. So these drugs became very attractive for prescribers. Subsequent experience, of course, has shown that okay. it would appear that we have traded one set of side effects for another can you tell us a little bit about what the side effects are that I need to be looking for or monitoring uh, as a GP? Well, of course, although the atypical drugs appear to cause fewer extrapyramidal side effects, uh, they can occur, so one mustn't forget about those. But the more concerning side effects, arguably, are the metabolic side effects, and we know that some of the atypical drugs, particularly alantapine, quetiapine and clozapine are associated with quite significant weight gain. 
We also know that these drugs are associated with problems with glucose handling. People may develop hyperglycemia and even frank type 2 diabetes with an insulin resistance picture. And they're also known to affect lipid metabolism. Some of these drugs in common with the first generation agents also cause hyperprolactinemia. So again, it's important to monitor prolactin levels throughout treatment. Okay. Now, I seem to recall when the atypical antipsychotics were first introduced to clinical practice, drug companies were heavily promoting the fact that they appeared to be more effective in treating the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. Has the reality lived up to the promise? The negative uh, symptoms of schizophrenia are symptoms which arguably patients would consider to be uh, most troublesome. It manifested through apathy, social withdrawal, lack of volition, uh, self-neglect and, and so on. I think if one takes a, a dispassionate view of the literature, it's really very difficult to claim superior efficacy. There are a huge number of studies out there. The, the main difficulty appears to be that of methodological heterogeneity. But if we look at some of the meta-analyses and some of the pragmatic trials which are out there, I think it's very difficult to find any convincing evidence that these drugs are more effective in, in, in treating the, the negative symptoms of schizophrenia and schizophrenia-like illnesses. Would you like to take us through how you would start treatment with a patient? Well, one of the great challenges is that the patients we often deal with are presenting in an acutely unwell phase of their illness uh, and very often are not capable of engaging in an informed discussion. So one, in those circumstances, would have to take a decision about what would be in the best interest of the individual and the possible draw in carers and relatives and, and, and so on. Uh, in order to make those decisions. But in situations where these drugs may be prescribed for an individual who is not as, as unwell, who is able to engage in a discussion uh, about the treatment that's being proposed, then it's important that you know, the cards are put on the table, as it were, that the, the benefits of the proposed treatment are described, but also the patient is made very aware of the potential side effects. One of the difficulties mental health professionals face is trying to engage patients with mental health problems in their treatment and convince them of the, the benefits of remaining on treatment. And it's not surprising, therefore, that if a patient feels that they've not been fully informed about the side effects, when they start to put on weight or develop diabetes, they don't want to take the drug any longer. So it's important that these issues are, are faced uh, and uh, put to the patient early on in treatment, if at all possible. NICE has, in the last few years, introduced uh, guidelines on the management of schizophrenia in primary and secondary care. On the basis of both that guidance and current evidence, what message do you have for younger generations of psychiatrists and other doctors who might be prescribing these drugs? One of the conclusions was that and I quote here from, from the guidance, 
choosing the most appropriate drug and formulation for an individual may be more important than the drug group. And I think the message there is atypical antipsychotics should not necessarily be the first choice for all individuals. There is a role for the first-generation typical drugs. The problem, as I see it, is that the younger generation of psychiatrists really have very little familiarity with prescribing these drugs, and I would include myself uh, within that. I, I commenced my training uh, from about the year 2000 onwards in, in psychiatry, and atypical drugs were being used increasingly frequently. And by the mid um, by 2005, these, these older drugs were not being used at all. And it's not surprising, therefore, that if younger doctors don't have any familiarity uh, with prescribing these drugs, they're simply just not going to use them. So I think we need to revisit the whole issue of training uh, and familiarizing our younger doctors with these drugs. So at least it is a therapeutic option should they choose to use it. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with new research on prostate screening. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.